It was 1990 when I began to pastor my first church, which means for over 20 years I've been standing before congregations preaching. I did a quick tally in my head, and I've never been really good at math, but I think I'm hitting it pretty close. During the course of those 20 years, considering that many of those times there were Sunday morning and Sunday night and very often Wednesday night, I have probably preached anywhere between 1,700 and 2,000 sermons over the course of 20 years. That's a lot of talking. I've been different topics, different styles. I've changed a little over the years, I think. I pity the people who had to sit there at the very beginning. And there have been different locations. But at least one thing has not changed. I have, during these 20 years, diligently sought to keep my preaching anchored in and focused on the Word of God. Dr. A.T. Robertson, whose book I used quite a bit in seminary and still use today, was one of the preeminent Southern Baptist scholars of the 20th century. He said this, One of the best proofs of the inspiration of the Bible is that it has withstood so much preaching. That's true. I preached some messages and stepped off the platform and said, boy, that was pretty lame. That really didn't go anywhere. I didn't really, I didn't really make a point there. What, what was that all about? Only to discover that somehow God took that which I thought was an utter failure and used it to speak to the hearts and lives of people who were sitting there, which just goes to prove that even I can't mess it up. God's Word is powerful. God's Word speaks. God's Word touches lives and changes hearts. This is what God said through the prophet Isaiah. As the rain and snow come down from heaven and do not return to it without watering the earth and making it bud and flourish, so that it yields seed for the sower and bread for the eater, so is my word that goes out from my mouth. It will not return to me empty but will accomplish what I desire and achieve the purpose for which I sent it. God's Word is powerful in and of itself. Even I can't mess it up after 20 years of preaching. You see, the Bible is not simply another great book to be set on the shelves beside Homer's Odyssey and Shakespeare's Hamlet or Tolstoy's War and Peace. It is a unique book. For it claims to be the very Word of God. It is my hope that this week and next, as we look at both the inspiration and the authority of Scripture, that you will be able to find that the Bible is unique in its claim to be the Word of God. It is not to be put in the same category with other holy books of the world, but it stands apart speaking God's truth to mankind. As we look at this, as we consider what God says about himself and his word and what scholars have said about him and his word, it is my hope and prayer that we will come to a new and fresh appreciation and even a hunger for the word of God. Not so that we can criticize other religions, but so that we can have a solid stance in our faith, knowing, knowing that what we have in our hands as God's Word is true and holy 
and that we can build our lives on it. Because if we don't have that appreciation for God's Word, then we'll end up building our lives on foundations that are not firm at all. We're going to begin, well, actually for this week and next week, we're going to kind of camp on a portion of Scripture that was written by the Apostle Paul to his young protege, Timothy. Timothy was a new pastor, and he was leading a new church. He needed a lot of help. He needed to know that there was something solid and true and sure that he could hold on to. And the wonderful thing about this letter that Paul wrote to Timothy was that it has been preserved for us by God so that we too can share the same confidence that he tried to instill in Timothy. If you have your Bibles, I invite you to open up to 2 Timothy chapter 3. We're going to look at verses 14 to 17. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 14 to 17. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have become convinced of, because you know those from whom you learned it. And how from infancy you have known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Heavenly Father, we come to you today asking you to speak to us, convincing us of your truth, and giving us the confidence to live in that truth. And so, Lord, we open up our minds, our ears, our hearts to receive what you have for us today. Speak to us, for we ask for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Just like me, when I started so many years ago pastoring a new church, Timothy needed some encouragement. He needed to know that there was a foundation upon which he could build his message and his ministry. He didn't have to come up with it on his own. So Paul tells him, all Scripture is God-breathed. All Scripture is, in your translation perhaps it says, inspired. What does this mean? What does it mean when we say the Bible is inspired, the Bible is God-breathed? And why is that important for us as we begin to live our lives? Well, one of the first things we need to say is that we want to start with a word of caution. And that is, let's not be deceived by the word inspired. Because we use that word for other things. For instance, we may use that word about a piece of music by Bach. We may say that was, that was inspired. Or a painting by Rembrandt. Or a poem written by your grandchild. All those things are, can be inspired. That is, if when we say that, what we mean is that it's extraordinary in some way. It transcends the mundane. It touches us in a special place in our our hearts. We can say something is inspired and and mean it in that way. That's all well and good. But when we say the Bible is inspired, we we want to be very careful because that's not what it means to say that the Bible is inspired. The Greek word that is translated in your Bibles, inspired or God-breathed, is the Greek word... Theonustus. Theos is the Greek word for God, and noustus means breath or spirit. So to say that scriptures are God-breathed means that God is the source of scripture. God is the author of scripture. 
When we say that it is God breathed, it means that God breathed into those who were writing. It is God's word. Now, this does not tell us precisely how God inspired. And in fact, Scripture itself does not go into the intricate details of how this human divine interaction took place. But we do get a pretty good idea from 2 Peter chapter 1. In 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 20 to 21, we read, Above all, you must understand that no prophecy of Scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation. For prophecy never had its origin in the will of man. But men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Again, a word of caution. When we hear the word prophecy, we immediately think of something that's foretelling the future. That prophets did what they came in and said, this is what's going to happen out in the future. And there's some truth to that. In the, in the Hebrew, the word prophet is translated nabi. It comes from a root word meaning to bubble forth as from a fountain. It came to mean to utter, to speak. A prophet is one who spoke. Now we look in the Bible, we see in the Old Testament a number of prophets. We might think of Daniel, we may think of Elijah, we may think of, of Isaiah. And certainly part of their message was a future message telling us something that would happen somewhere out there in the future. But you know, there were other people who really didn't do any future casting who were also called prophets. Moses was called a prophet. The patriarchs were called prophets. David was called a prophet. They were considered to be prophets because they spoke from God. Not necessarily about the future, but they spoke from God. When we fast forward to the New Testament, we see the Greek word prophetess means to speak before or to speak for. Thus, according to the Holman Bible Dictionary, thus it refers to one who speaks for God or for Christ. So when we read that prophecy never had its origin in the will of man, it's not simply saying prophecy is future-telling. The prophet is one who speaks forth the message of God. And so we read, men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Here we see this, what I've called a human divine authorship. We've got to figure out how this works if we're going to have confidence that what we hold in our hands is true and holy. We've got to know how this human divine all come together and interact. The character and uniqueness of each writer is seen. We can see it in the 66 books which make up the Bible. But the overall character and truth of God is not diminished at all, even though you have some of the personal flavor of each author. These writers did not come up with, on their own, come up with what to say. The Holy Spirit of God moved them carried them along like a leaf in a stream. Their hands may have moved the pen, but what we're reading here is that God's hand moved their hearts and moved their minds so that what they wrote down was God's word. It was true. Through the years, Bible scholars have attempted to explain just how this process of inspiration works There are all kinds of theories, all kinds of views, all kinds of explanations out there. For instance, some say that it's basically that God just 
just kind of heightened man's sensitivity of what was going on. That this is just a little more insight than just the average ordinary man. And this, is, this was called the illumination view, that God just kind of shined a little more light on it so that the writers would, would, would understand a little more about life. And, and that, they wrote based on that. Now, the problem with that is that includes so much of the human element that people who take this view will, will often argue that there are parts of the Bible that really aren't true because people were just kind of kicked up to a little bit higher level, but really... Really, not all of it can be counted on this to be, tr- to be true. Now, the reaction to this would be to go to the other end. It's what's called the dictation view, which basically means that God came, he spoke, and they just kind of wrote it down word for word, just what he said, which takes the human element completely out of it. In other words, it's just dictation by God. Now, you've got kind of those, those different views. And then, of course, you've got one that's way, I won't call it out in left field or right field or any other field. This was way out of the ballpark. There's another view that I won't even name because it basically means that there are people who said, this is just stuff the guys made up. This is just made up. It, it has no validity at all. Anybody who builds their lives based on the principles and the truth found in this Bible, are, it's just foolishness. You can't count on any of it. But the Bible teaches that it is God's Word written down by men. God's Spirit carrying the writer along so that what is written down is precisely what God intended, yet the words still reflect the character and the uniqueness of each human author. For example, reading through the four Gospels, you get a sense of the writer's heart and mind and skill level they're writing typically to different audiences, perhaps to a Jewish audience primarily over here or to a Gentile audience primarily over here. And so you see differences in style, differences in format, differences is a lot of things as you read the four Gospels. However, because there is one author who is God, what we see is one consistent picture of Jesus. One picture written by four men, that's what we wrestle with here. How do we put the pieces together with the human and the divine? How does this all fit together? Well, the view of inspiration that appears to be most consistent with what the Bible has to say about itself is called verbal plenary inspiration. There will not be a test after this, but it's good for you to know this. Verbal plenary inspiration. Verbal has to do with the very words that are written. Plenary means full or complete. So basically, verbal plenary inspiration means when God moved men to write down his revelation, that every word was the very word of God. Every word was the very word of God. Now, if you can buy into that, that when this was written down, that God was guiding, leading, carrying along these authors so that they wrote down exactly what he wanted written down. Then the next step that we have to take is this. Is it still true today? Or, through the centuries, has what, do what we have in our hands, has it been corrupted? Is it less than true? Can we really count on it to be God's true word?
Well, we see that in the writing that God was involved to get his word across clearly. But what we see as we look through the history of its preservation is that God also guarded his word. I want to give you some confidence in this. I want you to be able to pick it up and know this is true. So how can you know that it is true? Well, first of all, by the way, the scribes handled the Word of God. They handled it as holy. In fact, if you go back and you do a little studying, you find out just how diligent they were to make sure that what they copied was accurate. It was not only checked twice, it was triple-checked. Compared to their original, they, they look at this, they look at this, not once, not twice, but three times. And if they found even one error in their copy, guess what would happen? Out it goes. They didn't keep it. They destroyed it. Because they were convinced that this was the true word of God. And because they were convinced of it, they took great pains to make sure that it was copied and carried on. This is before photocopy machines. This is before mimeograph. It was all done by hand and done meticulously and carefully by scribes. We also can look at the earliest manuscripts of the Old Testament. The Masoretic text, which again, there won't be a test on this, dates to 980 B.C. Now, the Dead Sea Scrolls were discovered in the uh, early 20th or the mid-20th century. They contain large portions of the Old Testament books. I want to read to you from Gary Brantley, who wrote the Dead Sea Scrolls and Biblical Integrity, because he says it as well, if not better, than I could say it. So I'm just going to share with you what he writes. Most of the biblical manuscripts found at Qumran belong to the Masoretic text tradition or family. This is especially true of the Pentateuch, which are the first five books of the Bible, and some of the prophets. The well-preserved Isaiah scroll from Cave 1 illustrates the tender care with which these sacred texts were copied. Since about 1,700 years separate Isaiah, the prophet, in the Masoretic text from its original source, in other words, 1,700 years between the Masoretic text and Isaiah himself, textual critics assume that centuries of copying and recopying this book must have introduced scribal errors into the document that obscured the original message of the author. The Isaiah scrolls found at Qumran closed the gap to within 500 years of the original manuscript. So the documents in the Qumran cave were only 500 years away from Isaiah. Interestingly, when scholars compared the Masoretic text of Isaiah to the Isaiah scroll in Qumran, the correspondence was astounding. The text from Qumran proved to be word-for-word identical to our standard Hebrew Bible in more than 95% of the text. The 5% of variation consisted primarily primarily in obvious slips of the pen and spelling alterations. Further, there were no major doctrinal differences between the accepted and the Qumran text. This forcibly demonstrates the accuracy with which scribes copied sacred texts and bolstered our confidence in the Bible's textual integrity. The Dead Sea Scrolls have increased our confidence that faithful scribal transcription substantially has preserved the original content of Isaiah. Now that's just taking a look at one 
of the books of the Bible to give a point of reference to see how diligently this was copied from hand to hand to hand. And so we have the care of the scribes. We have this comparison to the ancient text, which, which proves the care of the scribes. But we also want to look at a third confidence that we can have, and that is the testimony that Jesus had about Scripture. Jesus obviously appealed to the Scripture as his Father's revealed truth. When he was tempted by Satan out in the wilderness, Jesus answered, It is written, Man does not live by bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. In doing this, he was not only talking about the power of God's Word to sustain us, but he was also quoting the Old Testament. Now, if you want to give some good validity to the truth of the Old Testament, the fact that Jesus would quote it is pretty good proof. Jesus confronted the Pharisees by saying, You nullify the word of God by your tradition that you've handed down. In other words, what you have done is that you have elevated man's tradition above the word of God. That's the wrong standard because God's word should always be above human tradition. To the Sadducees, he said, You are in error because you do not know the Scriptures or the power of God. The two are intertwined, the Scriptures and the power of God. And then in John 10.35, Jesus states emphatically, The Scripture cannot be broken. Now all this is Jesus' testimony to the power and the truth of the Word. It appears to me, at least, that Jesus had great confidence that His Bible was true. Now, you say, but that's the Old Testament. What about the New Testament? Can we count on the New Testament to be true? Is there any evidence that the New Testament that we have is consistent with what was written down about 2,000 years ago? Is there any consistency to that? Well, the evidence is actually staggering. It is astounding how accurate we find the New Testament to be when compared to the oldest documents that we can find. There's nothing else in antiquity that compares to it. Nothing. For instance, although we don't have the original Gospels or the letters of Paul or or Peter or or James or John, there are over 5,700 Greek manuscripts and fragments dating to as early as the 2nd century A.D. Early on, the New Testament was translated into various languages, creating 20,000 to 25,000 copies, thus continuing to preserve God's Word. Now, if we didn't have all these books and all these fragments and, and all these translations that were printed early, early on, if we didn't have any of those, if all of a sudden they just disappeared, we could still put together nearly the entire New Testament by sermons and other texts written by early church fathers, which add again to its validity. In other words, what we see is that the New Testament, the book that we have in our hands, was faithfully preserved and reproduced exponentially. It multiplied. It boomed. But as we look at it, what we see is a remarkable consistency. How accurate is that? Well, let me read from... uh, Westcott and and Hort in the New Testament in the original Greek, they write this. Again, scholars far wiser than I. If comparative trivialities such as changes of order, the insertion or omission of the article with proper names like a D or an A and the like are set aside, the works, in our opinion, still subject to doubt, can hardly mount to more than a thousandth part of the whole New Testament. 
In other words, the little slips of a pen, the little change in an E an A to a V are less than a thousandth part of the New Testament, and none of it affects doctrine. None of it affects doctrine. So, what are we to draw from all this? The Bible that you have in your hand is the inspired Word of God, written by men as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit and superintended by God through the centuries. In other words, you can count on this Word to be true. You can count on it. So, what should be our attitude if this is true? I want to suggest to you four things. First of all, read it daily. If this is God's true word, shouldn't we be reading it? I had someone come to me this morning and said, Hey, I I read some of the Bible like you asked me to, and I, I didn't understand it. Well, you know what? The first step is to read it. Then find someone to help you understand it. You've got to read it. You've got to get it into you because, we, as we said before, God's Word's not going to come back empty. It has power in and of itself. Secondly, memorize it faithfully. Some of you may groan at this. Memorize it. Oh, you, Pastor, you don't know my memory. I have a terrible memory. It's just awful. Let me tell you, if you begin to read it and focus on a certain part of Scripture, memorizing that, meditating on that Scripture, maybe writing it down. It may take you a month to memorize one Scripture. But you know what? That's okay because at the end of the year, you'll have 12 Scriptures memorized. Some of us get really ambitious. I'm going to memorize 365 Scriptures this year. Well, that'll last about a week. I'd rather have 12 pieces of Scripture that I know well than 365 that I can't put together. And so begin to memorize it. Take a verse here, verse there. Write them on index cards. Post them up on your refrigerator. Post them up on your bathroom mirror. Put them where you can read them. Write them down in a journal. Whatever it takes to begin to memorize Scripture. Third, study it diligently. Once you begin to move into this, you, you, you read it, you meditate on it, memorize it, but begin to study it. Begin to dig a little deeper and say, okay, I didn't quite understand that, so am I going to be content not to understand it, or am I going to find a way to learn and to see what this means? Not what it means to me. I can come up with anything about what it means to me, but what does it really mean? Because what I want to do then is change what I believe to fit the Scriptures. One of the neatest things that happened in our grace group, we were studying a portion of Scripture, and I asked someone to read it, and she read it. And I asked what, her, what she thought it meant. And she goes, well, I always thought this, but what I'm reading is this. Wow. Now you're getting to a point where the Scripture begins to change your life. When you look at this and say, you know what, I always thought this. But this is what God is saying. Your life will begin to change as you, as the power of God begins to work in you to transform your thinking and your heart and your life. So read it daily, memorize it faithfully, study it diligently, and live it authentically. Once you begin to understand what God is saying in your life, begin to live out the Word. Begin to live out the principles in it, the truth in it. James said, don't just listen to the Word, do it. Don't just listen, follow through. One of the reasons that we have in many of our grace groups 
gone to a sermon-based small group is to give us yet one more opportunity to come together as a group to discuss, this is what God said on Sunday to me. This is how God spoke to me. Now, how can I live this out in my daily life? How can I begin to put into practice that which God has spoken to me? And how can we as a group help and encourage each other to begin to live out the truths that God has revealed? You see, when it comes right down to it, you and I have to make a choice. Is this true? If it is true, what difference is it going to make in my life? I want to call upon you to study yourself, to read it yourself. You can come in here and week after week after week rely on what I have to say about this book. But if you want your life to change, then you need to open it and you need to hear what God has to say to you.